Hello and welcome to this episode of the Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. Today I speak with Shane McCorstein, who's written a book on a history of dreams and ghosts as related to British expeditions uh, to explore the Arctic in the early 19th century. So thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Shane McCorstein, author of The Spectral Arctic. Um... He can't hear me, but I can hear him, so I'm going to type in the question so there will be a slight delay as we speak, but that's fine. So again, he's the author of Spectral Arctic, A History of Dreams and Ghosts in Polar Exploration. <laughs> You'll hear typing as I type uh, type my questions. No problem, no problem. Sorry for the, uh, <laughs> sorry for the, the mess... All right, so how did you get into writing and studying this subject? How did I get into the writing and studying of the subject? Yes, yes. Um, I think I think when I was uh, when I was younger, I was really interested in polar fiction, hmm. and obviously I'd read um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I'd read a few um, adventure stories, but I was also particularly interested in Arthur Conan Doyle's short story, The Captain of the Pole Star. Hmm. And that was uh, a gothic tale about a whaling captain who um, is progressively becoming haunted by his, um, his dead lover in the Arctic. And his crew think that he's going insane um, but he keeps going farther and farther north in search of this ghostly love uh, so there's a connection there between between ghosts the gothic and polar exploration and, uh, and Conan Doyle was a great gateway into that because of course he was uh, a great fiction writer but also somebody who had actually um, been on northern whaling expeditions himself so he knew what he was talking about tell me how you lay this book out and again he's reading the questions i'm typing so so the book um the book is i guess a a revisionist history it's um yeah that's that's the that's the cover the spooky cover um it's it's a revisionist history which is looking again at the classic era of polar exploration but with attention moved slightly away from stories of geographical achievement and heroism and bravery and science and more towards um, stories of dreams and haunting and of bodily breakdowns of transcendence of visions and that move away from the um, traditional uh, focus uh, does a few things. First of all, it, it brings in non-explorers into the story, people who couldn't physically be present in the Arctic. So women, children, um, even the dead, those aren't people you typically class as being part of a polar expedition. Um, but the other thing that it does is it, it brings the history of polar exploration out of a particular silo, which is quite masculine and geographic and probably quite imperialist, and takes it into a new arena where explorers aren't that noble, aren't that heroic or strong, but actually are quite emotional and prone to breakdowns and um, dreaming every night and having visions and fantasies. Um, so, it, I guess the, the, lay, the, the book rubs against a particular uh, traditional um, way of writing about the history of polar exploration. Hmm. Do you have a personal connection to the Arctic? A uh, personal connection? Uh, I don't think so, no. Um, uh, we In Ireland, we would have a tradition of... Um, Celebrating polar explorers uh, who were from from Ireland, so Ernest Shackleton would be the most famous. 
uh, Antarctic explorer, and um, his colleague Tom Crean, who was also from Ireland, from County Kerry. Uh, and when I grew up, they would have been um, celebrated polar heroes. And every year in a town called Athai in County Kildare in Ireland, there's still an autumn school that celebrates uh, the achievements of Ernest Shackleton and the other Irish explorers. Um, and of course, this topic of the Gothic or the ghostly is also part of Shackleton's story because, um, as, as, as many people know, the, the, the account of the fourth man, um, presence, do you, do you know the story of the, um, when Shackleton and, uh, three colleagues uh, Shackleton and two colleagues were crossing South Georgia Island in a desperate march to try and reach safety after the expedition collapsed in Antarctica. Uh, there was three of them on the expedition, but all of them believed that there was a fourth presence, um, which has been interpreted to mean an angel or some sort of um, guardian spirit. Um, but this particular incident was written about a lot, especially in Christian um, uh, writings uh, around the World War One era. Uh, so there's a link there between Irish polar explorers and the sense of the polar regions being um, inhabited by spirits, both friendly and uh, not so friendly. Hmm. Do you go into events, personalities, or some other aspects of exploration? Yeah, yeah. And the, the center uh, story in the book relates to Sir John Franklin and his uh, doomed uh, 1845 expedition in search of a Northwest Passage. And this was a particularly interesting expedition because it was... Uh, it was quite large, it was well funded, uh, the ships themselves had some interesting technologies, and Sir John Franklin was a veteran polar explorer, he'd been doing it for about 30 years, so there was a sense that um, the British Navy was reaching um, a critical point in its, um, I guess, four decade long assault on the polar regions, and they wanted to achieve this geographical passage through the Canadian Arctic. So the expedition was quite celebrated and there was a huge media buzz about it. So it's linked to kind of the emergence of Victorian print culture as well. Hmm. And, uh, and then something marvelous happened. The expedition disappeared and this generated uh, a huge outpouring of interest, speculation, uh, frenzied investigations um, and nobody knew what happened so around the world the common phrase in everybody's lips was where is Sir John Franklin uh, so it inspired ballads, it inspired ordinary people to send in their dreams to naval authorities, <laughs> to John Franklin's wife, uh, Jane Franklin it um, inspired people to design wacky and uh, wonderful projects to try and save this lost expedition, including uh, balloon experiments. Um, somebody wanted to be fired in a cannon. Uh, somebody else had a great plan to hire uh, ex-prisoners and send them on a kind of a suicidal mission to the Arctic because, well, they're prisoners so they wouldn't mind the, the hardship. And um, so, so Sir John Franklin features in the book as a kind of a magnetic force that is attracting a huge amount of Victorian culture. He's attracting theories about mesmerism, theories about um, spiritual travel. Uh, popular newspapers are, are drawing pictures of the expedition. Um, Jane Franklin, his uh, wife, is campaigning for funds to try and rescue him. Whalers are searching for him. Uh, even the Americans get involved, um, especially um, Henry Grinnell, the, the millionaire um, uh, industrialist, and Elisha Kent Kane, who himself is a kind of a, um, a quasi-historic, um, heroic explorer who becomes 
obsessed with the Franklin mystery. Uh, so that's the kind of the central story, and around that story, you have uh, other forms of exploration. So there's the physical forms of exploration, naval, um, land-based, but what I'm interested in is also the people who weren't physically in the Arctic, but were um, there in their imagination or there uh, mentally, um, because that widens out the story and it tells us something about how um, 19th century societies looked at this region. Was the sense that the polar regions were dangerous and evil to the public or something else? Was it midway between the earth and the other side? Yeah, yeah, there was, there was a lot of, um, there would have been a lot of folklore about the polar regions. Um, and it's, it's an old story, particularly in Western Europe. Um, there would have been a lot of, a kind of a geographical imagination of the far north as, uh, an otherworldly place, a place um, of uh, monsters and um, ghosts and the world of the dead. Um, in the medieval period, there would have been particular uh, conceptions of um, Satan as coming from the far north. Um, there would have also been a residual memory or folk uh, memory of uh, the colonies in Greenland and the Viking colonies and um, the engagement between um, uh, the Vikings and the indigenous inhabitants of Greenland. Uh, and most, a lot of those um, engagements were filtered through discourses of the supernatural. Uh, and this comes across in some of the, uh, the sagas uh, of the Vikings. Mm. Uh, and of course, the Greenland colonies also disappeared in a kind of a mysterious um, set of events. Uh, so you've got uh, a kind of a geographical imagination that paints the far north as a place of mystery, a place somehow disconnected from the temperate regions. Um, it's not a particularly uh, interesting place to colonize. Uh, so it seeps into popular consciousness as a uh, another worldly place where Perhaps there might even be gateway entrances to the center of the earth. And of course, this reappears famously in, in, in uh, Jules Verne, but it, it goes right back to, um, to older conceptions of, um, a North Pole or a kind of a great mountain where the North Pole would be or, um, a mountain range or even a kind of a, um, a kind of a, a heavenly land of, of, um, Spanish speaking peoples who are in the far north. So you have all these fantasies um, uh, drifting around Europe uh, at the time. And some of it's due to uh, geography. Some of it is due to a perception that this is a very icy realm. Um, this is a place that is so beyond uh, the normal uh, climatic conditions of, of the British Isles. Um, but it also taps into traditions going back to the ancient Greeks that say the far north is a place of wonder and mystery separated from from our societies. Hmm. Did people want the explorers to bring supernatural protections with them or religious protection? Um, there, there would have been... Um, well, I, I guess one of, one of the things I'm, I'm trying to, to work out is uh, can we use words like the supernatural and the religious um, as if they're separate. Hmm. And one, one, one example I always give is if people ask, do you believe in ghosts? And you might give an answer, yes or no, or maybe. Um, but if you ask, do you believe in the Holy Ghost or Holy Ghosts? Well, they say, well, that's a slightly different matter. That's... Hmm scriptural or that's religious or that's faith-based. Um, but when, when I think about 19th century people and I think about people on expeditions, uh, my first impression is that they were never simply 
and religious in one moment. They were never simply interested in ghosts in another moment. Um, everybody dreams. Everybody has uh, beliefs about their place in the world, about the um, the voyage that their body will take uh, after death. And when you have uh, Christians, especially evangelical Christians, and a lot of these naval explorers were evangelicals, hmm. when they were praying in the Arctic and when they were seeing um, cathedrals in the ice or they were converting Inuit people or they were attending a seance with a shaman, uh, I, I see that as all interrelated. I see that as um, as 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 actors in a inhospitable or strange climate, uh, tapping into uh, tapping into their feelings, tapping into their emotions. Uh, some of that was through religious ritual, ritual that we would recognise in London or Edinburgh, attending services, and um, some ships would have had a chaplain, other ships would have. Uh, the, the the commander would have uh, led prayers, um, but you've also got this this deep seated interest in in shamanism and in the, um, the 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 spiritual culture of Inuit people. So yes, I think the the people who went to the Arctic were complicated. They were people who dreamed and who prayed and who uh, wrote letters to loved ones back home. Um, I don't think they were. Uh, I don't think they would have recognised uh, the criticism that they might have been superstitious, hmm. because I think in the 19th century, um, sailors, commanders, navigators, superstition is one way of describing um, actions or beliefs that may not make sense in one context, but during a storm or when someone is trying to navigate through an ice field, uh, a lot of naval superstitions are actually encouraging the person to just pay attention and to be careful yeah. and to watch what's happening yeah. and to look out for certain birds, certain signs, not to make certain sounds at certain times. Um, a lot of that is actually um, pragmatic, uh, functionalist, ways of being alert and of course in a different context it's superstition um, in a more uh, risky context it's simply following protocols that are hyper uh, vigilant um, and, and possibly irrational but so you know we, we, we have to be careful with words even though I always use the word supernatural I'm, I'm, I'm always ambivalent about how I how I use supernatural religious superstitious so when people experienced winter ice and snow, did they imagine that the northern polar wastelands had reached down to them and would affect them in these mysterious ways? Um, well, there, there was there was a sense that the, the the polar regions were were outside of what people had previously experienced, and and you can get a sense of that in the popular press. And some explorers would have uh, corresponded with. Um, Newspaper men, uh, artists, panorama makers, and, and consulted with them in how to uh, uh, vividly portray what it was like to be in the polar regions. Um, and, and that did a few things. First of all, it gave people who were, who couldn't go to the polar regions or never were there, it gave them an impression of what it was like to be there. So a tiny minority of people go on expeditions. Uh, so most people's uh, impression of the Arctic is through the media. And therefore, the, the, the creators of these three-dimensional panorama shows, um, the writers of ghost stories, um, such as Conan Doyle's Captain of the Polestar, um, the writers of popular press, um, they take on a, a real importance in mediating the Arctic to most people. And actually what they mediate is quite stereotypical. So 
to take one example, the Inuit are usually represented as either happy and smiling and dancing, um, or, or savages, um, hmm. quasi-cannibalistic savages. Um, the Aurora Borealis is usually represented, because that becomes a kind of a, a symbol of the Arctic regions. Uh, and uh, the explorers themselves become uh, portrayed as hero navigators, as martyrs for science, as um, disinterested explorers. And, and that, that's quite an important thing in terms of British imperialism, because exploring the Arctic was always seen as clean and as bloodless hmm. and a form of travel and exploration that didn't involve um, disease and conquest and ray and dispossession, but was purely navigational discovery. Um, and actually, um, these uh, forms of mediation uh, assist in that idea that the Arctic is antiseptic. It's a place of wonder. It's a place, it's a blank slate. Um, the British are there mapping it. Um, as if no one had lived there for thousands of years and had their own maps of the regions. Um, so there is uh, a history of being in the Arctic, and the British are one aspect of that history, and actually they stand out as quite incompetent inhabitants of the region. Uh, and then there is the more stereotypical idea of inhabiting the Arctic, which is... Uh, reflected in the popular culture of the Victorian period. Um, and the classic example of that is the way the ship is adapted for winter living. So these ships become homes for the men during winter. Uh, and, you know, if, if you think about it from a distance, it's just, it's, it says a lot about, um, British 19th century culture that explorers are actually turning a ship which is stuck in ice for nine months of the year. They're turning it into a home with a roof and fires and schools and a cricket pitch and filtered water and a prayer room and a room for nursing wounds, a bakery, a brewery. And that's not normal. And one of the things that comes across in the um, the wonderful Inuit oral accounts that we have um, is just how strange the presence of Europeans was in the Arctic. And, and we don't usually get that perspective in British histories that actually the strangeness of the Arctic isn't its... Uh, climate or its um, um, aerial phenomena or its um, ice or its mirages. The strangeness is the presence of Europeans uh, in gigantic boats. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from an Inuit perspective, these boats arriving with over 100 men dressed in wool and leather boots, that's extremely strange. Their language is strange. Their intentions are strange. It's strange that there's no women. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Their objects are strange. Their food is strange. Even their feces is strange. And that's somehow how they could track uh, the presence of Europeans through their through their scat. Um, so once we take another perspective on Arctic exploration, we start to turn the dial and realize actually it's Europeans... Their presence in the Arctic is, is extremely odd, and their actions there are extremely odd, mm. and maybe not necessarily heroic and glorious, uh, or certainly not as, as we might have first imagined. Mm. So what other secondary issues do you cover in the book um, that we haven't discussed yet? Um, I, I discuss uh, a, few, a few stories um, relating to uh, the Franklin expedition, and in in particular, uh, the way that young women tried to contact the expedition through trances, uh, and this is this is quite a controversial area because um, 
for a long time it was believed that um, Franklin's widow, uh, Jane Franklin, and also uh, people around her may have uh, engaged with some clairvoyance or psychics um, to give them some advice on where Franklin might be. Um, so, so we knew that, but um, in the book I go into uh, a deeper investigation um, and show that uh, not only was, was Jane Franklin attending uh, mediums and psychics, but she also attended a, a scryer, and this is somebody who uses a crystal ball to um, mm. to look into the future or to um, to look into a distant location uh, and um, tell the viewer what's happening. And um, as as a as a as a side uh, story to that, um, Jane Franklin was contacted by an Irish man actually um, called uh, Captain William Coppin uh, and. He was a shipbuilder in uh, Derry in the north of Ireland, and his daughter died in 1849. Uh, her name was Wheezy. She was a four-year-old. She died of gastric fever. And he reported that the ghost of his dead daughter returned to his home after she died in the, flo- in the form of a blue orb, and that this orb um, wrote some um, navigational points on a wall, uh, points which suggested that Sir John Franklin was um, near Prince Regent Inlet in the Arctic. So Captain Coppin wrote to Jane Franklin and said, listen, you, you may not believe this, but my my dead daughter has, has reappeared and is suggesting that Franklin is in this particular region of the Arctic. What do you think? Would you like to talk about it? And Jane Franklin is extremely interested, and um, she invites him to uh, uh, to uh, mainland Britain, and they have discussions, and uh, Jane Franklin uh, adapts her uh, policy to take account of this ghostly information. And She's privately funding the expeditions to search for her husband. Hmm. But now she's using the testimony of Coppin because he's a credible person. He's a shipbuilder. He's an inventor. He's, he's, um, um, he's somebody who has, um, a certain authority in the area. And his testimony causes Jane Franklin to, uh, change her, uh, geographical, um, coordinates for two of her expeditions. Now, the two expeditions that go in search of Franklin based on the ghost's testimony and get stuck in the ice, so they never actually get to the region. But I guess, from a hindsight point of view, the region was actually um, the key to solving the mystery of where the expedition um, failed. This is the Prince Regent in that area. And the reason why it's controversial is that um, when Jane Franklin died, the inheritors of her estate and her supporters and her niece, who was quite a powerful um, uh, colleague of hers, all denied that she was ever influenced by psychics or ghosts or mediums and really tried to repair um, that aspect of her reputation. But in the book, I go into, into some detail into the uh, the letters that still exist in archives, hmm. um, in which she's discussing these uh, what were called revelations with other people, and more importantly, she's discussing them with admiralty officials, with naval explorers. Uh, so, for me, that 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 says that in the 1840s and 1850s, especially. Um, there isn't such a barrier between uh, um, religious visionaries, naval authorities, and supernatural communication. That actually, at certain times, especially when there's a major disaster, especially when something goes missing, and we know this from missing airplanes, from missing ships, uh, when there's an information vacuum, and when... Um, search and rescue fails when a child goes missing 
uh, people will look for other forms of information um, because when there's an information vacuum, um, all information is hopeful. Uh, it's like data. It's, you don't reject any data that's coming in. Mm-hmm. You keep the letters. You respond positively. Uh, uh, you accept them as leads. And Jane Franklin was doing the same thing. Um, and it so happens that the testimony of most of these psychics was, was baloney. <laughs> they were directing expeditions to vastly different parts of the Canadian Arctic. But the testimony of Coppin um, and Coppin's family was quite interesting. And from a cultural historical perspective, the question is, why does that become embarrassing in the later 1850s? Why does Jane Franklin um, stop talking about it? Why do letters go missing? Uh, and why is this denied in the 1860s, 1870s? Uh, and that tells us something about the changing relationship between um, uh, elite society, middle class society, and this sense of the supernatural, the idea that um, ghostly children from Ireland or uh, teenage clairvoyants from the north of England can have any authority over major Arctic expeditions. That becomes... Uh, intolerable so it's 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 a story about why the incredible becomes credible for a 10-year period Hmm. and then why it becomes incredible again and i guess the the underlying message is that um um the supernatural is 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 socially created um Hmm. it's messy it's um it's not bounded. It can it can leak, and many of the people who uh, deny ever having any interests in this kind of thing, well, we can prove that some of them attended seances. We can prove that some of these Arctic commanders uh, were in the very room with Jane Franklin when uh, there was a scrying experiment with one of these crystal balls, hmm. and of course. All of these Arctic commanders were deeply religious, so they would have had spiritual beliefs in any case. So, you know, there's a tendency to think of explorers in the past, particularly um, middle-aged naval authorities, as being commonsensical and stiff upper lip. But the documents tell us something different. They tell us that they were interested in um, the accounts coming from uh, clairvoyant seances, uh, they didn't discount them immediately, but again, when there is a mystery, when there is a lack of information, particularly involved in the Arctic, which, as, as we discussed earlier, was already thought of as an otherworldly place, well, then it could kind of make sense that some people in a trance might be able to spiritually travel to this strange region, especially if there are contemporary technologies like the telegraph, which is doing precisely the same thing. So might not some of these young women or some of these ghosts actually be contacting an Arctic expedition through natural but undiscovered means? <laughs> so this this is the kind of language that people were using that um, psychics might not be babbling in the occult. They might actually simply be Human telephones. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is this is this is the kind of language that is emerging in the 1840s. Wow, that's interesting. So, what resources did you use to do your research? Uh, so, I, I guess um, there is a certain amount of interesting material in the journals of explorers themselves. Um, so they would normally have quite a sober language in how they describe the Arctic. Uh, and that language does break down on occasions, especially when they're discussing the aurora borealis or um, ice or mirages. Uh, so you can get a sense of um, their geographical imaginations in those moments. But if you're looking for accounts of dreams and emotions and um, uh, a sense of foreboding, or of fear, then you would only get it in private diaries. 
and a lot of those would have been in um, in the British Library in London and in the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge. And in the diaries, you get a better sense of what it was like to be in the Arctic, what a person could feel, uh, what a person could see. Uh, and uh, they're a decent source for the... Um, the psychological aspect of being in the Arctic. Um, the, the second major source would have been um, uh, digitized newspapers. Hmm. So there's been a real uh, revolution in, in the digitizing of newspapers in the past 10 years in Britain. And we've now got access to a lot of regional and provincial newspapers uh, where people are writing letters to the editor and the editor is printing them. And when there's a major international event like the Crimean War um, or the loss of Franklin, uh, people have opinions. And in many cases, those opinions are printed. And those opinions are marvelous and interesting. And some of them are crazy. But almost everybody has an opinion on Franklin. People are guessing where he is. Some people think he was captured by the Russians. Some people think he's hidden in a kind of a a polar jungle, a kind of a temperate place beyond the North Pole. Uh, some people think the expedition is trapped in an iceberg. Um, so there's, there's, there's lots of hoaxes and rumours and speculation, and you get a sense of this in the newspaper press. Um, and again, that traditionally wouldn't have been part of the history of polar exploration because it's taking place in Britain, hmm. in newspapers. Yeah. But it actually tells us a lot about how people thought about a place they could never visit. Um, how people thought about um, expeditions that were uh, disconnected from home. How do you make a connection with a lost expedition? Mm. Um, and then the third form would be a correspondence. A correspondence to Jane Franklin uh, and correspondence to other explorers where people are mentioning their dreams and they're talking about their visions um, and that's a quite a rare uh, source and it's even rarer because we know that a lot of people would have um, destroyed letters and there would have been some um, self-censorship uh, so I guess one of the one of the other um, aims of the book, was to try and make a link between all of the topics I've been discussing and um, a particular um, play by Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins. Um, and this is called The Frozen Deep, and it appears in 1857. And that was an interesting source because this play is quite important in Dickens's career. Uh, and it's a play about a lost polar expedition. Mm. Uh, in which the two main characters uh, are at risk of killing each other on the expedition because they love the same woman. <laughs> uh, so it's an old, it's an old kind of story. Um, but what is interesting um, for my purposes is that um, the people back home in the story are so afraid that the expedition will collapse because they are consulting a Scottish nurse who claims to have second sight hmm. and the nurse says that the men are going to kill each other, it's going to be a total disaster and when Dickens was writing this with Wilkie Collins we get the sense that he was disturbed by the whole relationship between the Arctic and the supernatural and he used this play as a way of neutralising that threat and the threat is represented as a Scottish nurse with these crazy second sight opinions. Um, but Dickens put a lot of mental energy into the play. And by the end of the play, the prophecies of the Scottish nerds don't come to fruition. And the character that Dickens plays actually, with a stiff upper lip, uh, refuses to engage in cannibalism, refuses to murder his love rival, and sacrifices himself for the expedition. Hmm. Uh, so this was a play that would have um, 
attracted thousands of uh, audience goers in Manchester and London, including Queen Victoria. Uh, and many people reported being moved to tears by Dickens' performance. So it was a performance on stage, but it was also a kind of a cultural performance which said that there has been this link between polar expeditions and the supernatural, and this is how we neutralise it. We stand up for British values, and we reject uh, doom-laden prophecies of murder and cannibalism and un-English behaviour. Um, so that's not, that's a primary source that isn't written by an explorer. It's not about, um, it's not, doesn't contain much historic information about an expedition, but it tells us a lot about, um, the opinions of Dickens and audience goers, um, opinions relating to the Arctic as a place where the supernatural can emerge, but also be defeated. So what other archives, if any, stand out for their useful documents or journals? Other archives? Well, uh, the the National Maritime Museum in London has, has a very good archive. Uh, also the Royal Geographical Society in London, they have a very good archive relating to this. Um, and the Royal Geographical Society in particular has the papers of a wonderful eccentric called William Parker Snow, and um, Snow is one of these visionaries who um, is constantly writing letters to the newspapers um, with his plans to rescue Franklin. Uh, he's writing letters to Jane Franklin, and she actually hires him briefly to assist on an expedition because she's impressed by his, um, his uh, enthusiasm. Uh, but Snow becomes particularly obsessed with the Franklin expedition, so obsessed that... He, um, he nearly goes bankrupt trying to fund an expedition from Australia to the Arctic. <laughs> uh, and even though he only gets to the Arctic once, briefly for a summer season, he spends the rest of his life up until the 1890s, uh, talking about the Arctic, writing about it, and obsessing over it, and imagining that he's at the center of a great um, criminal enterprise trying to destroy his correct theories on Franklin. Mm. So he's a real paranoid um, person. Um, he's somebody who who imagines the Arctic to be a space of morality, mm. and for him, trying to rescue Franklin was was akin to a crusade, and he believed that he was chosen by God to complete this enterprise. So his papers are in the Royal Geographical Society, and they're quite interesting to, to go through um, because it gives you an insight into um, some of the eccentric personalities that were attracted to this mystery. And I guess you could, you could draw parallels between the Franklin mystery and other major events in the 20th century, other disappearances um, or, or, or disasters, because... These things tend to um, they tend to open up and invite people to speculate, to invite people to write letters. It creates wonderful sources and, and data for historians working on them in the future, because it taps into the imagination, it taps into people's perceptions of place, but it also goes against traditional um, archival forms of gathering historical facts based on uh, what a civil servant wrote or what a politician said in Parliament uh, or what an editor said in a newspaper. Actually, we've got this other stream of information uh, which is unauthorised, illegitimate, frequently crazy, but ultimately it's coming from people in the community. It's coming, it's unsolicited and it's, it's raw and it's, it's deeply fascinating. So what was the most enjoyable part of the research? I think some of the most enjoyable parts of the research uh, involved uh, bringing women back into the story. Um, by definition, these expeditions were, were, were totally male. Um, and 
in in cultural history. Of course, in the past 20 years, there's been, there's been a revolution in in the way we think about history, the way we think about absence, and um, the way people are written out of history. And there was rarely any place for women in histories of polar exploration of geographical achievement because they weren't there. Um, but that doesn't mean that they weren't present. So there's, there is a huge difference between physical presence and cultural presence or imagined presence. And on the one hand, we have explorers in the Arctic who are deeply emotional people who are um, husbands and fathers and lovers and they are constantly thinking about their wives or their children. And they are dreaming about them, writing to them, drawing pictures for them, writing them poems. Uh, so they are also present with them in the Arctic, in that sense. From the British sense, uh, we can see with the involvement of clairvoyance, um, with the involvement of writers, uh, that women could have access to the Arctic in a mediated form. So uh, a good example of this would be uh, Charlotte Bronte, um, who wrote Jane Eyre in um, 1847. So it's around the time of the the Franklin um, disappearance. And um, and in in, in that novel, uh, Jane goes on... uh, a kind of spiritual journey to the Arctic by reading a book. So she's reading a book called um, uh, Thomas Buick's History of British Birds. And in the book, there's a discussion of um, some of the birds of the Arctic. And uh, Jane goes into this reverie, this kind of dream state, where she travels to the Arctic. And that I take that as a kind of a representative of a practice that many newly literate women were doing. Hmm. Uh, They were reading Arctic novels, they were reading novels of travel in general, and they were mentally traveling to these places um, because they couldn't physically travel. Uh, So there was that presence um, from a distance, and uh, male writers pick up on that dichotomy um, and that feeds into this um, subgenre of the polar supernatural. And the example of Arthur Conan Doyle is probably the best because there are some pretty poor examples of this theme out there. Hmm. But the typical story is nearly always um, a lonely or crazy Arctic navigator is exhibiting uh, paranoid or delusional behavior. And the crew speculate that he is um, haunted by a woman, or the crew believe that they are haunted by a woman, or they're being chased by this spectral feminine presence through the Arctic, or because of some misdemeanors that they've engaged with um, with the Inuit, because of some grave digging or some um, a physical assault against an Inuk woman that the expedition is being cursed hmm. by a female sorceress. Uh, so there is that whole subgenre of ghost stories in which manly men in the Arctic are being pursued by female specters. Hmm. Um, and some newspapers pick up on that, and you see that in Punch, the famous um, periodical, hmm. where... Um, uh, the Arctic starts to become represented as a monstrous, powerful, frigid woman who can um, prohibit male entrance into her realm. So there's a whole uh, cultural discourse about ice, icy women, um, passages, um, frozen routes. Uh, so... Basically, the point is that the Arctic is a space of gender, Hmm. and that's a part I really enjoy writing, because you're using very different sources than you would normally use when you're writing about how men move from point A to point B, Mm -hmm. 
and how many died in between. You're actually you're reading these wonderful ghost stories and this pulp fiction, and you're thinking, well, why is it? Why is there this association between ghostly women and the Arctic? And it's essentially because women couldn't physically be present, so they were spectrally present. And contemporaries picked up on that and reflected it in fiction, in dreams, in paintings, in cartoons. So hmm. women are present, but just not in a actual physical way, but in many other ways. Hmm. What was the most difficult part of the research? Uh, what was the most difficult part? Um, I suppose there, there, is, there is a temptation to um, to normalize this behavior. And I, I mentioned earlier the, the corrective, the important corrective that we have other perspectives on the presence of explorers in the Arctic. And um, But there is something deep-rooted in all of us in Western Europe, possibly in America as well, um, definitely in Canada, that um, this activity is noble. It is worthy. It is heroic. It is, um, by definition, a wonderful thing, a brave thing. Um, and something I, I always ask my students to do is to think about it from a di different perspective. What happened in, in the 16th century if uh, a group of Inuit arrived on the shores of Britain in a, in a hide boat uh, and started asking people to draw their maps and tell them about a route to Spain? Um, and people have lots of different opinions about what would happen, but none of them particularly pleasant. Uh, whereas the exact same thing happening in the 1570s in the Arctic is seen as the start of a great narrative, a great um, period of polar exploration. Uh, and that's normal because we have collectively normalized this voyaging impulse, this um, impulse to try and map the globe uh, according to our needs and desires. Mm -hmm. But if for one instance we could look at it from a different perspective, from the perspective of people who live there, uh, we'd see that it's so strange. So the most challenging part, the most difficult part, is to try and get into that perspective. And it's incredibly difficult if you don't have um, um, any uh, allies uh, on the ground there, or you don't have uh, language abilities, or you don't have any traditional knowledge. So it all comes back to we rely on the sources and luckily a lot of Inuit oral histories have been published and um, and written up. Um, so so we, we need more of that. Hmm. Uh, and there will always be that tension between the instinct to, to celebrate any form of movement in the polar regions as being necessarily heroic and the reality that that's very odd behavior. Mm. And, you know, we can use the analogy with space travel and think, well, you know, people think of rockets going up to outer space and people walking on the moon. And I suppose that's a great achievement and quite meaningful. Um, but when we think of the Arctic, they, they weren't astronauts in the Arctic. They weren't landing on the moon. They weren't landing on blank space. They were landing in a region that was was vibrant, was um, had seasons. Um, it wasn't always dark. Uh, it had inhabitants with complex cultures. Uh, they could read maps. They they knew their area. They had um, religious beliefs. Um, they had art, culture. But the narrative is that explorers land in these locations and discovered the place for them. <laughs> and the most dangerous thing we can do is conflate Antarctic and Arctic exploration because, of course, Antarctic is uninhabited. It is uh, or was a non-human space. Um, and traditionally, going back maybe 50, 70 years, there would be combined histories of polar exploration, as if both regions were similar. Hmm. 
So there would be a history of Arctic and Antarctic polar exploration. As if the Arctic didn't have hundreds of different indigenous groups, multiple languages, uh, multiple nation states and cultures spread across the whole circumpolar region. Uh, there was a kind of a conflation between um, the model of the Antarctic as a blank space of mapping and discovery and Cold War politics. Uh, so that, that's that's quite a tricky thing to 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 um, to defend against that temptation to um, conflate the polar regions and think of all activity in the regions as necessarily noble and brave. Can you speak to any difficulties in getting the book finished and published and how you overcame those? Um, I, sp- I suppose a lot of the difficulties in getting the book published were, were self-generated in that uh, like a lot of historians I don't write particularly well. Uh, I've had to work hard on translating archival material and ideas into um, readable prose. Hmm. And it's not something we're trained in. It's something we, we we learn again every day, how to communicate well, how to get an idea across. And I guess a lot, a lot of people who read academic books are put off by certain things, and I do understand that. Um, but when we are teaching in universities and when we're trying to get book deals. Um, there are certain things we need to get across in the book. We need to advance the field. And that's something that a, um, a popular writer doesn't have to do uh, necessarily. And that might explain why you pick up an ac- academic book and there's theory and there's uh, links to philosophers and there's kind of digressions into um, mind-body dualism or what have you. Um, but a lot of that is down to the, 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 the publishing industry uh, and academic culture and the need to constantly be challenging predecessors and creating a new vision of the past. Um, so that can be a challenging thing to um, to work with when when you're trying to tell uh, an interesting story. Um, but in, in, in general, um, this project came out of a, of a fellowship I had, which gave me the time to go to the archive to write these papers. Um, and a lot of the chapters were originally conference papers, so I was going to uh, conferences um, being held by uh, literary people, by social historians, by naval historians. So uh, I was getting a lot of feedback from different types of historians and academics. Um, I was also going to a fair amount of um, popular talks. So uh, I had a particularly good talk in a um, in a bookstore in London uh, called Treadwells. Uh, which is is famous for um, selling books on the occult and offering people courses on witchcraft and healing, uh, the use of crystals. And the audience there were great because they were coming at this from a very different angle than like an academic audience. Mm. They were interested in, in the details. They were interested in the magic. They were interested in symbols and relics and, and superstitions. Uh, so Trying to marry different audiences and create the book was was quite challenging. And um, from experience, whenever you write about ghosts or the supernatural as a historian, you're always um, you're nearly always crushed between two icebergs, to use to use a pertinent metaphor. Um, on the one hand, there will be people wanting to read a really good story uh, with fleshy characters and uh, narrative arcs and um, drama and suspense and gory details Hmm. and 
actual ghost stories, actual ghost stories, and that's fine and that's that's great. On the other hand, we have an obligation to write a scholarly work, uh, a book that will be accepted by peer reviewers, that will be published by an academic press, um, that will advance the field, that will be recommended for um, university teaching courses. And for that particular audience, they wouldn't be interested in a very populist book on ghost stories set in the Arctic. Yeah. Um, they might be interested in a story about the history of ghosts in the Arctic with detailed archival evidence and a kind of a, um, an agenda that's heading out to break down a particular way of looking at the Arctic and bring in women and children and supernatural to tell a different type of story. So, Two very different groups of audiences, both have different ideas about ghosts. Maybe one group is more interested in literal hauntings, ghost stories, and one group is more interested in the symbols, the signs, Mm -hmm. what a ghost represents to a society. So you've got to, um, you've got to bear both of those in mind, um, whenever you look into the history of, um, of ghosts and ghost belief. And that's something I've found quite a lot that you've, you, um, you're, you're open to, you've got a great audience. Lots of people are interested, but with, with very different, um, with very different agendas. So some people are asking, what does a ghost mean? Some people are asking, have you seen any ghosts? <laughs> uh, those are very different questions. Yeah. So, and I'm not sure I have answers to either yet. But. Okay. What's your next writing project? Um, next writing project is a. Uh, I'm turning to dreams again, and I'm trying to work out the relationship between um, industrial accidents in Britain in the 19th century and uh, precognition or whether people um, discussed their dreams um, people who worked in risky industries so basically I'm thinking of the dreams of miners Mm. and there's a lot of folklore relating to uh, mining disasters being predicted by miners Mm. so there's lots of ballads and stories that miners would tell their wives the night before, I think I'm going to die tomorrow, I had a weird dream. Um, and there is significant evidence that during the inquests after major mining disasters, um, a lot of widows would have told the coroner that my husband did predict this disaster. Um, so I'm interested in, in tapping into that. And I guess my main question there is... Um, is mining considered to be so risky a profession that dreaming or, or talking about your dreams uh, is a kind of a way of discussing risk. It's a way mm. of discussing safety and alertness and carefulness. Mm. Uh, so maybe when, when men are talking about the dreams of disaster to the wives, they're not talking about kind of a supernatural communication, but what they're actually saying is um, my job is quite risky and I'm t- telling you all the time that I think I'm going to die. So the project is about how uh, sharing your dreams is normal in the 19th century. Sharing your dreams is actually related to industry, it's related to mines, it's related to people who worked in quarries, people who worked at sea. But that suddenly stops around 1920, and people stop discussing the dreams, and dreams become embarrassing. They become something that are intensely private, and that public culture of sharing dreams and talking to policemen or or coroners about dreams, that's gone. So I'm interested in teasing out why that happens in the 20th century. 
uh, I just wrote a joke. Bankers aren't talking about dreams of financial disasters. Uh, then I ask, where can people find the book in your ongoing work online? <laughs> no, they're not, talk- <laughs> they're not talking yet. No, but we're all having nightmares. We're all having. I'm, we're, we're still talking about our nightmares about banking disasters. Um, people can find uh, details of my work on my website, which is uh, shanemacarriston.net, um, and on my webpage on Newcastle University History Department. And the book is available on uh, the UCL Press website. And I guess the novelty of this book is that it's available to purchase in paperback or hardback, but it's also open access, uh, which means anybody can freely access it um, in PDF format from anywhere in the world. Um, And I'm happy if anybody reads it and... Um, shares it um, because the point of these books is that they're read, not that you make money from them. So, hmm. and just to spell Shane McCorstein, it's S H A N E M C C O R R I S T I N E dot net. Any final thoughts? Uh, th- thank you for thank you for talking to me um, from a. Uh, a spooky and spectral Skype connection uh, <laughs> across the Atlantic. Um, I guess uh, uh, final thoughts uh, would be to um, for people to keep an eye on what's happening in the Arctic because uh, Franklin ships were found in 2014 and 2016, and this has inspired a whole new set of uh, debates about. Uh, how the Inuit communities inherit this disaster. And there's talk about um, uh, supernatural curses over the region because of the shipwrecks. Um, but the story is also inspiring sci-fi again. <laughs> and there's this new series called The Terror yeah. uh, on AMC, yeah. which was a very interesting take on the Franklin Expedition. Not historically grounded, I should say, because it does involve a kind of a de- demonic <laughs> polar bear, evil spirit monster. Uh, but interesting nonetheless to see how the Franklin myth and the sense of the Arctic supernatural is being uh, revised and adapted in the 21st century. Cool. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you, Chris. No problem. Lovely to talk to you. You too. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.